This is Risky Women Radio, a show to connect, celebrate and champion women in risk, regulation and compliance. Sharing insight and perspective from the most influential members of our global Risky Women Network on the latest developments we need to think about, the challenges we should all talk more about and the innovation we are most excited about in governance, risk and compliance. Bringing together the hundreds of senior women professionals already connected with a new emerging group of leading women and men. I'm Kimberly Cole, your Chief Risky Woman. This episode is brought to you by our founding sponsor, Refinitiv. Refinitiv serves more than 40,000 institutions in over 190 countries. Refinitiv provides information, insights, and technology that drive innovation and performance in global financial markets. Refinitiv enables the financial community to trade smarter and faster, overcome regulatory challenges, and scale intelligently. Welcome to Risky Women Radio. Today's Risky Woman is Ruth Steinholtz from Arate Works. She is an advisor on business ethics with expertise in culture risk measurement and management, ethical business regulation, and value-driven leadership. Ruth joined us at two Refinitiv regulatory summits in Sydney and in Singapore. And today we're going to share with you the live event from Singapore. It was great also to be joined by Sherry Madeira, the Global Head of Industry and Government Affairs at Refinitiv. So let's go to the live event and hear Sherry Madeira welcoming all our risky women to the room. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the Risky Women Lunch. Uh, My name is Sherry Madeira. I am the Chief Government and Industry Officer at Refinitiv. I'm delighted to be here uh, and delighted to meet all these new faces um, that are here for the same sort of purpose. Um, So Risky Women is new to me, um, but as a global network for thinking about uh, and connecting risk-centric regulation and compliance people in the industry, this sounds like a great place for us to really share and start learning from each other. Um, So not only events, but podcasts and thinking about uh, ways that we can connect uh, virtually as well as physically and in person um, is a great way for us to start thinking about how we can continue today forward. Um, So, uh, as a woman who spent uh, 20 years uh, in various businesses, uh, ranging from investment banking to entrepreneurship to telecoms to diplomacy, a diplomat, and now uh, here at Refinitiv looking at the government relations piece, um, I think that I have, uh, you know, a bit to learn as well uh, and a bit to share about how it is uh, to be a professional woman uh, in a very, very changing landscape. Uh, And I think we can all agree that regulation and financial services is one of the most rapidly changing over the course of the last decade. Uh, And it's not set to slow down. Uh, It's set to continue to accelerate. It's set to continue to challenge us. Uh, And I think today's topic is going to be particularly interesting for us to think about how it all impacts each and every one of us and how it is that we conduct our business going forward. Um, So today's uh, fantastic session brings together our chief risky woman, Kimberly Cole, uh, with Ruth uh, Steinholtz, uh, the managing partner at Arete Work. Um, And the debate is around the ethics of compliance. Uh, So I think that regulation, compliance, privacy, you know, these are all buzzwords that we know a bit about. 
Um, but when we start thinking about how those big buzzwords that are affecting us today are going to be completely disintermediated with the use of financial technology, AI, machine learning, the sophistication of perpetrators when they're putting together some financial crime plans, thinking about how regulators need to deal with fragmentation and bringing things together, certainly there's a lot to talk about. In which case, we only have now less than an hour, so I will uh, welcome uh, our fireside chat uh, to the stage, Kimberly and Ruth, um, and let you take it over from here. Uh, I'm delighted to be here, delighted to learn with you, and looking forward to keeping in touch. Kimberly and Ruth, thank you. Welcome everyone to the Risky Women Lunch. I am uh, thrilled to have Ruth here with us today and I think this is a really fascinating topic as uh, Sherry uh, introduced, um, ethics and compliance um, uh, I think is going to be a, a very interesting one for us today. So hopefully um, we will have enough time uh, to uh, have a few questions from the audience but I think it's going to be um, a fast session today and we welcome you all to you know it's a working lunch so your your uh, food will be served and we'll just eat and talk um, over over the period that we have together so welcome Ruth um, it's been fascinating just the conversations that we've managed to have initially and and besides all of the wonderful things that Sherry already shared with you we were talking about um, being bike riders in London yes. so we have other common interests which is fantastic Yes, it always brings one together with other cyclists. <laughs> so um, you can see on the on the table as well uh, uh, Ruth's book uh, there as well, which I think at the end of this you're probably not going to have want, uh, not going to have received all of the information that you want. But she is a published author, so um, there's going to be many opportunities that you can take to get some more information from that. Now. To start with, as we always like to do, because I think it's one of the most inspiring uh, things, is to hear about our Risky Women's career journey. So can you sort of tell us, how have you ended up where you have? Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Kimberly. Um, I wish I could say that there was a grand plan from the beginning, but um, there, is, there wasn't. Uh, I studied cultural anthropology at university and um, became a lawyer because I wanted to change the world. Uh, which may sound strange now, but um, when I became a lawyer, actually, uh, originally in the U.S., that was a thing. Um, and in a way, I feel like my career has come full circle because um, I immediately became a corporate lawyer, so it got totally, uh, in a way, off the track. Uh, but the reason for that was that there were a couple of things that I wanted to do, the main one of which was I wanted to have an international career and um, having uh, being an international corporate lawyer was kind of the easiest way of doing that. And I think that along the way, uh, so I worked in, I, I went, started out in San Francisco, got sent to Italy for three months and never went back to the United States again, uh, other than for a visit. Um, and in fact, I spent six weeks in Singapore at the beginning of my career and was offered a job here, but Europe was really where I wanted to be, so I went back there. And I worked in Italy, I worked in Egypt, um, and then in Spain for a year, and ultimately got sent to the UK by uh, the company I was working for at the time. And, uh, but little by little um, in my career, I got more and more involved with ethics. And eventually, um, in my last role as general counsel in a petrochemical company, 
really had an opportunity to live that passion of ethics, leadership, and values. And in a way, that's brought me to, um, to where I am now. So it's a very circuitous, totally unplanned uh, route. But the one thing that I think I did always try to do was constantly enlarge my interests and my skill set. Excellent. Was, was there a particular turning point in your career where you decided to sort of take this more focus on ethics and accountability? Well, I, think, I don't think there was any one eureka moment. Um, but having spent you know, years and years as a lawyer, uh, it became clear to me that the rules uh, weren't the only answer and the leadership um, and culture of the organization was really, in a way, almost more important. Um, and so I think it was a gradual dawning rather than uh, all of a sudden uh, just this is what I have to do and this is what's important. And, and did you see it as, as taking a risk in your career or, you know, what, what thing would you say is maybe the biggest risk that you've taken in your career? Well, I saw my career in some ways as one big black ski run because... Uh, in fact, once I was criticized, I was skiing with some friends, and they said, why don't you want to go down this black run? And I said, well, because my whole life is a black run. I don't need to prove myself as a risk taker uh, by going on a ski slope that I can't handle personally. Uh, because here I was, so when I started working internationally, really there were very few lawyers who were working outside of their own jurisdiction. Um, often in another language. Um, and I have to say that I was pretty much frequently the only woman or one of very few women in the room. Um, and I did most of my moves, I didn't do this within a sort of comfortable expat being transferred around the world. So um, risk was pretty much the theme of my, of my career. Yeah. That's, uh, I like the, the uh, black run analogy. That's yeah. fantastic. Um, and what... What would you call out then as, as your, you know, most important achievement, I guess, to date? I think, I mean, I've always said uh, previously the answer to that was learning to speak Italian fluently uh, when I moved there. Uh, because it was as if somebody had opened up a, a door in my brain and all of this language came out. Um, but it's probably because I'd studied Spanish since I was about seven years old. Um, they're obviously similar. But um, the other thing I have to say now is that having co-authored this book, because I always wanted to write a book, um, and I discovered that it's a lot better to co-author a book uh, with someone else because it doesn't feel quite so, uh, so risky in a way. And my co-author is an experienced author, so that was a fantastic experience. Great. So let's get on to a bit more about the, the book and the, and the topic at hand. And you mentioned um, that the usual compliance-focused approaches have really failed to create ethical companies that are committed to doing the right thing. So what are the biggest things that you see going wrong in compliance and, and what can we do about it? Well, I could write a book about the subject. Uh, actually, I did write a book about the subject. So, uh, but I think the first, the first thing I would say is tick the box. Um, as soon as you have a tick the box approach to something, it's uninspiring, it's not, people aren't interested in it, and that isn't really going to work. And I think, um, so there are a lot of other reasons. Compliance, just sort of pure compliance, let's say, that relies on procedures and policies it's, and rules, it's too 
externally focused. So you're trying to motivate people with extrinsic motivation, which is never as um, strong as intrinsic motivation. So what matters to them personally? And that's why values are, is so much more um, motivating and inspiring. So you need a balance. I'm not here to say forget compliance, obviously. But what I'm saying is that you need a balance and also that the way you do compliance can be values-driven. Um, there are a lot of other reasons, and that is that um, compliance can have unintended consequences. It can actually make things more risky because people think, well, we've got this big compliance department. They're taking care of the risk, so why should I worry? And that's one of the reasons, I think, for example, that uh, you see in many reports this idea that we need to make sure that the risk and the responsibility are put back together where they belong um, and that we support them. And then there are things like um, things seem safe because you have a lot of rules and regulations. Um, and so it attracts more people into that place. And it therefore becomes not only more risky, but the consequences are more devastating when something happens. And I just discovered about two weeks ago that that's called the fence paradox. Because you build a fence at the edge of a cliff before, there was no fence. Nobody would go near the edge. Now there's a fence. Everybody thinks it's safe. And then a whole lot of people end up on the cliff, and the whole cliff collapses. So <laughs> that's not what we want. Um, so there are a lot of other reasons. Um, but I think the, the biggest thing that we've failed to do mostly so far is consider human behavior um, and behavioral ethics, uh, behavioral psychology, and how we design our compliance approaches. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting, and I think we could probably dig into each of those areas there and, yeah. and we maybe come back to some of those or, or get some questions from the audience. Um, but um, given the audience and the expertise that we have here, what do you, uh, what do you think that we can all do about it? And, and, you know, there's a lot of compliance people in the room, but what are each of us sort of responsible for? So I have one mantra that I've had for many years, which is that everyone, um, everyone is a leader when it comes to ethics. Um, and I think if you remember that when you're doing your work, so that literally means everyone. Um, one of the things which I'm also quite proud of, actually, is that I um, created the concept of ethics ambassadors, which are people throughout the organization. So these are just normal employees from all different functions in an organization who have a bit of an extra responsibility for helping you to um, engage people with your code of ethics and some of your, and really facilitate some training and ethical decision making and, and help you understand what people are concerned about. And um, that means that you're more, that it really makes everyone feel that they're responsible and they're hearing about some of these things from their peers rather than from either a legal department or a compliance department that's somewhere off in the distance that they can't really relate to. So I think that's one of the big, um, the big things. And the other one, which is more about senior management, is uh, that organizations really have to uh, connect with their social purpose. Why do they exist? Uh, because no organization really should think that they only exist to make money for their shareholders. Um, and that also means that the system, in a way, has to change a bit. But I think you know, those are some of the big outlines of areas that um, we need to be thinking about. And then one other thing which is that we go into in the book 
quite a bit is that a lot of the assumptions that we've built our regulatory regimes upon and are therefore our compliance are based on some faulty assumptions. Uh, one of which is that deterrence and punishment are effective ways of changing future behavior. Um, and I have to tell you that generally they're not. Um, and that means that, um, and they can be counterproductive. People feel you don't trust them. Uh, again, it becomes we're just doing this because it's the law, not because it's really important or good for our business. So um, questioning some of the assumptions, which is one of the things I'm really good at, <laughs> uh, <laughs> is important. You know, be a rebel. Ask, is this the right thing to do? That's uh, very interesting. Once again, I think there's a lot more that we could dig into there. Um, what are the factors that, you know, cause people to either observe rules or break them? Well, so I think there's, um, it's not about people being sociopaths or psychopaths generally. It's a very small percentage of people in the world who are actually psychopaths or sociopaths. It's really about the fact that there's, um, that people will, in order to gain an advantage for themselves, all of us, like every, all of us, in order to gain an advantage, we will break the rules just enough to still be able to feel good about ourselves. We want to feel good about ourselves. On the other hand, we want to gain advantages for ourselves and our family. Uh, there's a, a behavioral psychologist called Dan Ariely, whose work I commend to you because it's both informative and very funny. Um, and he calls that the fudge factor. So that's the extent to which we can cheat and still feel good about ourselves. So that means, <laughs> that means, and it has really important implications for, for us in our work, because it means that you need to create organizations which people can't rationalize cheating because they feel that they've been treated unfairly or because um, they, you know, they don't like the company or for all kinds of reasons. Um, and context, so people with perfectly good values will engage in misconduct because of all sorts of things in the, in the context. Um, and that's why the culture of our organizations is so important, basically. Um, so it's often external factors um, that cause people to kind of take a step in the wrong direction, and once they've taken one step, it kind of gets easy to take another one and another one. Um, so it's often the context and uh, this natural tendency that we have to, you know, we want to get, in, get ahead. Wow, the fudge factor. And obviously there's been a whole lot of examples that we could go into <laughs> yes. around that and, and um, you know, hopefully we'll have time to talk a bit more. Um, so what, what, what sort of factors encourage as well as discourage that behaviour? So if you think about it, if you work for an organisation that you are proud of, that where you have a sense of shared vision and shared values with the leaders, um, and that you care about, you're, first of all, you're much less likely to cheat in that situation uh, because you don't, you know, you think you value the organization and you're also more likely to speak up or to work with someone who you think is sort of moving in the wrong direction. If you couldn't care less about the company, then you're, A, you're not going to bother, and um, secondly, you're going to be able to rationalize um, not you know, doing the right thing. But there are some other things, for example, you know, we all have this innate desire to belong, which leads us into a tendency to conform, so not to stick our head up against, you know, over the parapet and, um, and speak up. 
Um, if we think that dissent isn't appreciated or that nobody's going to do anything about it, we're just going to keep our mouths shut. Um, and um, the other, there's interesting research that shows if you're in a hurry, you're more likely not to notice the ethical dimension. There's a thing called the Princeton Theological Seminar, Seminary sorry, Experiment where they took students who were studying to be priests and divided them up into two groups. One was supposed to give a talk about the Good Samaritan, another about job opportunities for people after uh, studying in the seminary. Um, and then they set them different time to get to their, where they were going to talk. And the only people who stopped were the ones that had to help. And then, sorry, they had a, a person along the way who was obviously in trouble and needed help. And the only ones that stopped to help were the ones that had time to stop. Even the ones who were in their mind had this idea of the Good Samaritan, so somebody who stops and helps a stranger along the way, they just walk right by this person because they were in a hurry. Um, so there's a lot of really interesting uh, experiments that have been done that kind of show why people behave in certain ways. And the other classic one is about authority. So if someone in authority tells you to do something, people tend to have a natural respect for authority, um, so they may do it. One of the reasons for that is it kind of absolves them of any responsibility. Well, they told me to do it, so it must be okay. And that's why our leaders have to be careful what they say and what they do. And sometimes it's even things that sound kind of innocent that they say, but they forgot to say, by the way, it's also how you get your results, not just make the numbers, uh, hit your targets. So sometimes it's, it's an error of omission. A lot of leaders don't realize just how often they must keep communicating, continue to, to talk about the values and why doing the right thing and how you achieve your results uh, is important. So those are some of them. And the, the one um, which we talk about quite a bit in the book and, and which in a way I think is the most important thing is that if you have a blame culture uh, in your organization, and I haven't come across too many organizations that didn't have some extent a blame culture, on the one hand, you have a blame culture, so something goes wrong, you punish people, you discipline them. On the other hand, you say to them, please speak up if something goes wrong. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, but people won't speak up when they think that the consequence of speaking up is punishment. If they think that the consequence of speaking up is, let's learn from our mistakes and figure out what are all the 20 complicated factors that brought us to this point, then you have that climate of psychological safety, which um, people, where, where people will speak up. And also you have a positive feedback system whereby you fix problems before they become major issues. So really we've got to get rid of these blame cultures. Um, and aviation safety is the industry that's cracked that the most. Yeah. And generally speaking, safety. So when I worked in a petrochemical company, for example, I was able to say to people, you know, you think having a safety culture is really important. Well, guess what? Ethics is analogous. It's the same thing. So in safety, they, you, they'll, you'll often have a thing scratched on the mirror in the, in the uh, bathroom saying, you're looking at the person responsible for your safety. Well, you're looking yeah. at the person responsible for your <laughs> ethics. It's the same thing. Gosh, we're getting uh, leadership and <laughs> all sorts of t hints and tips here. So that's fantastic. Um, 
That's really interesting, very interesting examples. And I guess that also flows into the whole kind of whistleblower programs and all of those things where you almost need to have this, I guess, celebrate failure almost so that yes. people feel able to come forward with issues. Yes, it's how your leaders react when something goes wrong mm. makes a huge difference. I mean, I was really privileged in the petrochemical company. We really did have a this huge push on safety. And, you know, in petrochemicals, if something goes wrong, you can blow things up and kill people. So, of course, it was something people paid attention to. But what really struck me was when something did go wrong, and luckily we didn't kill, I think we had one fatality, which was actually a car accident. Um, but whenever something went wrong, the people who were involved in that area would come into our management team meetings with a full root cause analysis, naming all of the factors that had gone wrong, including often things that they were personally responsible for, discuss how they had interacted, what went wrong, what they were planning to do about them, and who was responsible for it. And the conversation was all very calm. Um, yeah. And just, okay, that's fine, understand that, and you know, make sure you do what you say you're gonna do. Um, and so people were fine to come in and tell the CEO and the CFO and general counsel myself because they were fixing it. So, I mean, obviously a lot of culture, a lot of, um, you know, tone at the top uh, uh, requirements. And, and what, are the, what are the biggest roadblocks to really ensuring that you have ethical business practice and that you have got the leadership that's required? Well, I think mediocre leadership is probably one of the biggest problems. And, and again, without blame. So think about it. Most people um, get into leadership positions, professionals in particular, because they were good technically at whatever they were doing. Um, so they might have been good lawyers, they become general counsel. Uh, they were good uh, accountants, they become CFOs, etc. But they don't get the kind of um, coaching and leadership development training that they should get in order to make them good leaders. And some people, frankly, just shouldn't be leaders, but that's another uh, story altogether. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is that um, until senior leaders really understand that a strong ethical culture and a, a culture of innovation and a sustainable culture are the same thing. It's not like we design one culture you know, for innovation, another culture for ethics, and a third culture for sustainability. They're all the same, and the same sorts of dynamics that operate in each one of those cultures make the company or the organization more successful. So if they got that, they'd spend more and invest more in their culture, and I think that's where we need to be also talking about the return on investment for culture um, and conduct, basically. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think people are, uh, and certainly companies and even the investors are making that leap in terms of how that can help with the return on investment? More and more, certainly in Europe, that link is being made. Now, I'm not going to say that everything is wonderful, uh, but I do think that there's much more of a, um, a recognition that um, it, this is you know, that it's, this is the case. Uh, it's also related to impact investing and ESG and that sort of thing. But also it's because there have been so many failures where you had perfectly reasonable compliance structures and codes and all the rest of it, and yet you still had these failures. So it's clear that compliance alone can't solve this problem. 
Um, so, so yeah, I think. And it's, and is it is? Do you think the momentum's building in the right way? Certainly, it is. Uh, when I started talking on the subject of values-driven uh, ethics and compliance, which was in 2004, 2005, I never had any trouble getting onto the program of conferences in Europe about. Uh, you know, compliance conferences in Europe. Now, there's a lot of people uh, talking about this. Now, some of them, I have to say, are really still talking about compliance, but calling it culture. So, for example, if somebody says to you, you need to develop a, you know, a better, a more ethical culture, let's do more training. That's not, I mean, yes, it's important to do training, but that isn't just, that's not the answer. It really, one has to get, dig down and understand the culture of the organization and figure out what are the drivers and what are the true values in the organization. And so what then most excites you about the opportunities um, and ideas that you sort of see around how things are developing and for compliance and I guess specifically in, in financial services? Yeah, I think the most interesting um, sort of regulatory developments that are leading uh, the way in terms of culture are the Dutch. Uh, so I don't know how many of you heard about the approach of the Dutch National, the Dutch National Bank, the DNB. Uh, they've written a book um, about this about five or six years ago, or maybe more. They started supervising culture. Now I have mixed feelings about their approach because basically they're sending an organizational psychologist into witness the senior management of, like they go to board, board meetings and things like that, they're only focusing on the senior management. And also, to me, this is still a parent-child approach. So this is the regulator going into the company and, and telling them what's about wrong with their culture. Now, first of all, I think it's the financial institutions themselves that need to be telling the regulator what their issues are in their culture using cultural measuring tools, which by the way, do exist. And if you ever hear anybody say you can't measure culture, tell them to call me because that's rubbish. You can measure culture. Um, and there's a wonderful instrument for doing it. Um, so I think really it should be the, the financial institutions being able to increase their level of trust with the regulators by being able to talk about the forces in their culture that they're working on trying to improve in order to uh, but the good news about the DNB is that it is focusing everyone's attention in, in Holland and uh, some of on the fact that culture and conduct and how the board functions and whether you have people who are too, uh, who dominate the conversation, whether the chairman doesn't listen, all of these things are important. The second uh, thing, in my opinion, is, is really this room, uh, which is that the more women who are getting into this area, I think um, it's just really exciting because I do believe that women bring a slightly different perspective and the more diversity that we have, the more likely we are going to succeed. So that's really exciting. Yeah, it's interesting. I was told, I was also told that by um, another compliance exec who said that she felt that by even just sitting on the trading floor and being a woman that some people felt... Uh, it was easier to come and tell her that something was wrong than they had with other male yeah. counterparts. Yeah, less is, competitive potentially. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I'm. You, you're offering so many areas that we could go down, <laughs> and I'm fascinated about the cultural measuring tools yeah. as well. Yeah. But <laughs> maybe yeah. it's another area to come back to. Yeah. Um, so um, 
once again, yeah. we've got a lot of compliance professionals here. Um, how do you think that ethics and compliance functions, you know, operate? And can they operate <laughs> as part of the same function or how, how should that sort of for best practice work? Okay, so I think I have a relatively um, possibly controversial view on this. So as I say, I think ethics is everyone's responsibility and compliance is an outcome of a strong ethical culture, not an approach. Um, I don't think you should separate ethics and compliance. On the other hand, I don't think that you should make the compliance function responsible for culture because the CEO and the senior management is responsible for culture. What I do think is that um, all of the functions across the board need to be working together and the more siloed you become, the worse it is because it means that you're not talking to and appreciating how all of the different functions uh, can work together. So, um, you know, I think that ethics and compliance, if there are two separate, if there are, if they're seen as two areas, they should probably be together uh, in a way, um, but there's pros and cons. And, you know, originally I didn't really see the need for a separate compliance department outside the legal function, but that was because I was a pretty unusual general counsel, possibly. But one, one reason for that was that in, in, over the arc of my career, I watched the legal department struggle to get the recognition of the importance uh, that it needed, which took, frankly, about 20 years. And around the time when, when general counsels were getting a seat at the top table, compliance split themselves off from that in many cases and then had to start climbing the ladder themselves again. Um, but it does depend entirely, I think, on the uh, organization of the company, what's the best way uh, to look at it. But I think you really ethics is the responsibility of management, and um, it needs to be supported in a variety of ways. But I hate to see it be seen as something that's not the responsibility of management. So I'm just going to ask one more question, yeah. and then if anyone else, it, it will yeah. open the floor to questions. But... So given that, you know, what, what is that leadership mindset that's really required to both build the culture and build this, um, I guess, an ethics function, but also just the way the company operates in, in an ethical yeah. way? So I think the leadership mindset needs to be, first of all, that this is good for business. So, so one of the things I would caution you about is if you do a lot of presentations telling people that if they don't follow the rules, they're going to go to jail or pay large fines, you're going to be telegraphing the message that we're only doing this because it's the law, one, and two, nobody thinks they're going to go to jail or pay large fines even when they have, I mean, even when other people have. So I think you have to be careful to um, really, your business case is this, a strong ethical culture is good for business. So that's the first mindset that needs to get into the heads of the senior leaders. And then the other one, I think, is that a values-driven, uh, understanding if they understand the value of values, so really having shared vision, shared values, and using that as a way of understanding how are we going to get where we need to go, then all of the other functions, including compliance, ethics, HR, OD, whatever, uh, should kind of all be moving in the same direction to try to accomplish that. Um, so it's kind of a servant leadership rather than a narcissistic type of leadership, understanding that everybody has a role in this um, and that everybody's contribution is important. So have we got any questions from the floor? 
Thanks very much, Ruth. Um, I was just um, wondering if you have a case study that illustrates the um, working out what the values of the organisation are yeah. and they need to be an integral part of business ethical leadership. Yes. So, you know, we, we, there are a lot of what not to do's out there, but what's a good case study that, that illustrates that and then the cascading of those values in the organisation that gives the effect that we would like? So, um, when I talked about cultural measurement, this tool that I was referring to is actually one of the ways you would do that. So, it's called a cultural values assessment. It's a, a thing called the Barrett Values Centre. Uh, and if anybody wants, I can provide the link. Um, so this is a way of finding out what's in, what are the top values of the people in your organization? What are the current, what do they experience in terms of the current culture values, behaviors, and what values they think are uh, most important for the success of the company? And those are the sort of desired culture values. And using, so you get, you get that information, you send a link to everyone in the organization, even if it's 200,000 people, it doesn't matter. Um, and then you, you do a series of workshops in the, in the organization to understand what people meant when they chose particular words and what sort of desired culture. And my belief is that by doing a consultation like that and using the information that you get from that, you can then really understand, because that's identifying the values. But the values are there. The thing is sometimes they're potentially limiting or blocking values or behaviors that are actually stopping you from being effective. But involving everyone in the choice of the core values, in my opinion, is fundamental. Because if, if, you, if your board sits in, on the 57th floor and picks up values out of the hat, which they think might be the right values, they, they have no idea whether those values really connect with people. And then once you know what the core desired values are and what they mean, how, what people meant by them, et cetera, then you can design um, a, a program of constant communication, awareness, and eventually you get to the point where people say, and I've experienced this, is this in accordance with our values? In other words, when they make decisions, they're actually using the values. Yeah. Okay, one from Jan now, please. Regulators may have various reasons for trying to change the culture of firms within an industry. What if the, um, those firms don't actually want to change their culture? How can you make them? How do you convince them to do it? Well, I guess it depends on why they don't want to change. In other words, if, they, if, they're, um, if there's a lot of misconduct in the firm and clearly there and um, a lot of issues, and yet they're, they're blind to this, which is often the case, you know, sometimes regulators have got to the point of saying, we well, need to replace the senior people because their lack of self-awareness um, of the problem is, is, is the problem. Um, if, on the other hand, um, you know, if, you're if you're in a situation where, well, let, let's put it this way. I don't think the regulator should be determining what the culture of the organization should be. And one of the things that I have a problem with is, the, is a lot of the efforts currently are saying, you, this is the culture that we should have, you need to aim at that. No, you need to understand from within what the culture is and what the positive aspects of the culture are that you can emphasize and how are you gonna deal with the negative aspects. But if it's an extreme case of a, of a toxic culture, you may have to remove the, leadership, the current leadership in order to fix it because the culture is a reflection of the leadership values and behaviors maybe past leaders, but maybe current leaders. So, and, and some regulators have the power to do that, others don't. 
So, um, yeah, you mentioned at the start the sort of tick-the-box um, idea-causing uh, problems um, for both ethical behaviour um, and how you really gave accountability and responsibility to more people and, and I mm. guess, leadership from everybody as well as the leaders. If you're looking um, at industries where you would say there's best practice, where would that be and how should you know, the financial industry take those on board? Um, well, I mean, the, the pioneer in terms of uh, working through blame to accountability is, is aviation safety and that whole safety culture. Uh, there are financial institutions who have used the cultural measuring tools. Uh, Old Mutual, for example, which is now, uh, they've demerged and changed their uh, business, but they, over a period of years, um, really took to heart looking at their culture um, and strengthening their risk culture. They used the Barrett tools to understand their risk culture and one of the inputs into their three lines of defense, et cetera. Um, and some of the stuff that they did is available uh, publicly. So I think that um, but in terms of industry, I would definitely say it's the aviation industry. Now, Boeing obviously uh, is in the news and I, what I'm sure is gonna come out of this, similar to with VW, um, is that they lost their fo focus on their culture and that their culture was, for whatever reason, uh, damaged. Because in aviation safety, if you talk to experts, I've met with the head of British Airways um, safety and security and also the head of the British, the CAA, and they all say that if they didn't have it, this safety culture in aviation, we'd have planes dropping out of the sky every week. And obviously that would not be acceptable. So that actually means, for example, that if, let's say an engineer does something that results in an accident, a ground accident or something like that, um, they do a root cause analysis, they figure out what's wrong, they fix it. They do not punish or fire that engineer. And in fact, EasyJet, I think, had there was some sort of an accident in Milan. Uh, the local contractor fired the person who was involved in it. EasyJet went back to the contractor and said, if you don't reinstate that person, we're firing you. Because as soon as you start firing people in that context, they stop telling you when they made a mistake or when something's gone wrong, and that's when things really go wrong. That's fascinating. Um, what about the impact of incentives? Because often it's sort of the way that incentives are designed or implemented yeah. that also causes the wrong behaviour. Yeah, I wrote a little guidebook for the Institute of Business Ethics called uh, Performance Management for an Ethical Culture, and we looked also at incentives. Obviously, incentives are a major issue, and frequently you end up with perverse incentives, incentives that are designed apparently um, to work but then cause people to do the wrong thing. I think the main response that companies, including financial services companies, were um, basically doing, first of all, <clears throat> reconnecting with their values, but then making sure that performance management and incentives were based on not only what you achieved, but how you achieved them. And in many cases, um, for example, in pharmaceuticals, GSK example, they completely disengaged sales from their incentives because they just couldn't figure out how you would end up with, you wouldn't end up with the wrong behavior. So I think that one really has to be careful when um, incentives have to be long-term, they need to um, really 
reflect the reality of the situation and they need to be focused on what is the real purpose of the organization, not just let's make money in the short term. And the system, by the way, has to change also in that regard. So, yeah, that's all very good, very good learnings. Um, I think we, we don't have much longer left, so if no one has any other questions, I'm going to ask some maybe a bit more general ones, mm. which are some of my, my kind of fun ones, which are, you know, if you think you were, you know, Queen Ruth for the day, mm -hmm. um, what, what's the one thing that you would change now? In general, uh, you mean uh, in compliance? Yeah. Or? Well, you can no. have one of each if okay. you like. You're the um, queen. Well, I would, st <laughs> I would stop Brexit. That would be the one thing I would change. <laughs> totally. Sorry, I can't resist that. <laughs> that is the most important thing right now as far as I'm concerned. Um, I think in compliance, I would, I would say um, that I would hope that people working in compliance would realize and uh, that they need to widen their um, their experience and you know not just focus on I know the rule and I know how to apply it because that's the start but it sure isn't the finish and I would I'm worried that too much you know, this this sort of singular focus on compliance and rules um, could be in a way a vested interest uh, that will n block a more wide, you know, we're dealing with human beings here, so, and also, yeah, so I, I think I would change the education of people going into compliance and make sure they had a broad, a broader exposure to all of these different areas, basically. Fantastic, and we, and we love to give a bit of advice to our um, emerging uh, women and men in mm. risk regulation and compliance, so what would be your advice to, I guess, your younger self or our emerging talent? Well, I mean, it wouldn't have been possible at the time, but I would have done a master's or a PhD in behavioral uh, ethics or behavioral psychology, really. First of all, it's so much fun. Um, there, there, I did do a massive open online course that Dan Ariely did on what he, he had written a book called Predictably Irrational and another book called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. Uh, but I think that, um, yeah, so that's one thing I would have done is I would have gotten a dual d degree, not just a, a law degree. Uh, and the other thing is, which is a bit off the wall, um, and again, wouldn't have been possible at the time, but I would have gone for non-executive director roles when I was in my 40s. Um, so don't wait until you start to have a lot of gray hair before you think about uh, NED roles in, you know, e even in completely other companies, industries, charities, whatever, it's a really good way to get executive experience and I wished I'd done it 20 years ago. So what is that one thing then if you, that you wish you knew now that you knew then? No, you wish you knew then, then. that you don't. <laughs> That's totally confused, but hopefully you understand the question. What is the one thing you wish you knew then that you know now? That's a tough one. I think, um, I guess that I wish I knew um, just how important um, the, your relationship, the relationship with the senior managers was from a, from a mid-level. In other words, you need to be influencing the CEO. You need to be influencing the, the CFO and chief, you know, all of these different um, business people in your organization. So I wished I'd understood just how important my visibility was 
um, across the organization at a, at a much earlier stage than I, than I did. Thank you. That is absolutely brilliant. I think we've got so many hints and tips there from both on ethics, compliance, as well as uh, leadership advice. So, Ruth, I want to thank you and uh, let's everyone give Ruth a round of applause. Thank you for listening to this exciting episode of Rescue Women Radio to connect, champion and celebrate women in risk regulation and compliance. I'm Kimberly Cole, based in Hong Kong. For more information on the Risky Women Global Network, head to our website in the episode notes and please be a part of the ongoing conversation by subscribing to this podcast, connecting with us at Risky Women on Twitter, or even reaching out to me directly by email.